Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Trapped in a Binary Sort. I'm Coraline Ada Emke and I'm joined today by Astrid Conte. Coraline, that is not the name of the podcast. What are you talking about? You know it's greater than code. I'm old and forgetful. <laughs> well, I'm not. So let me introduce the lovely Jessica Kerr. Good morning. I am happy to be greater than code today, especially because I'm here with Sam Livingston Gray. Good morning, everybody. And it's about to snow in Portland and people are freaking out. Meanwhile, uh, we are joined today by Amy Wobowo. Amy is a programmer slash artist who cares about STEM and STEAM education and making the world better through human-centric design and technology. She's the founder of Bubble Sort Zines, zines that explain computer science concepts via drawings and stories, and they are super cool and adorable. Previously, she was a web dev at Airbnb, did machine learning research at Honda Research Institute in Japan, and human-computer interaction research at the University of Tokyo. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. Amy, everyone I think is familiar with the term STEM, but what does the term STEAM mean? So that just introduces an art into STEM, and uh, the idea is that the two should be integrated together in classrooms. Is that something that feels very close to your heart? Definitely. Why do you think art is so important? Personally, I grew up loving both drawing and crafting and math and science and always felt growing up that I was being pushed to choose one or the other. And I never wanted to choose one or the other. But for example, when it came time to deciding what to study, in college, I felt like I had a bunch of schools that I was thinking about going to that were very math and science focused and a bunch of schools that were very art focused. And I felt like everyone was telling me to pick one or the other. And so I love the idea of STEAM education that tells you you don't have to pick one or the other. And in fact, it's going to enrich your understanding if you devote yourself to understanding both at the same time. I definitely want to talk more about the integration of art and technology a little later, but can you tell us like how you got involved in technology? Sure. I really loved making things as a kid, and that was making anything from like drawing and sewing little pillows and teaching myself how to touch type and making little games from... I think I had this book called Teach Yourself to Code in 21 Days, and they had a bunch of example games. And I would make like tic-tac-toe or little shooter games. And when I got into junior high, I learned how to make websites. And I think this was the first thing that I learned how to make that felt like an integration of my interest in art and my interest in technology. So I would code websites and also I would want to make all of the original content for it. So I wrote all my own content and did all of my own graphics in Photoshop. Um, and I had a lot of fun with that. And I never thought that web development would be available as a full-time career. So that was exciting. Amy, I think it's great that you brought up that you were a maker as a kid because... I feel like this is something that a lot of people can relate to, especially me. I was similar and just I made a lot of things. But technology as a career is never presented to those outside the industry as, you know, you're a maker. And I feel like it's an interesting concept that it's always talked about more as like a very sciencey, very 
technical job, but not a job where you're being creative and making things. Why do you think that there's not more focus on technology as being a career that is about making and less so much about just being very technical and sciencey? I kind of feel like it has to do with the dichotomy that I mentioned before that people are pushed to choose either um, math and science or art and art is associated with being creative and that that dichotomy doesn't have to exist and that the idea of making exists at the intersection of that. So Amy, where did you go to college? I went to college at MIT. So the technical bent one out on that? Yeah, a bunch of the art schools I was looking into, I would ask them, oh, what kind of math and science classes do you offer? And I think the highest level of math at some of them was college algebra. And that made me really sad. But it also made me really sad to feel like I might not have as much opportunities to pursue art on the side by going to like engineering focused school. So kind of felt like that I would lose either way. But I made up for it by drawing a lot in my class notes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that's where the zines come from. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of zines, Amy, I think you're probably best known, at least in the Twitterverse, for your work on the bubble sort zine. Thanks. I left my full-time job a year ago in order to focus on computer science education full-time via zines. Uh, what's a zine? A zine is a self-published magazine. They became popular in the 90s. It was a thing that was part of DIY culture and riot girl culture because you didn't need a publisher. You could make them and print them yourself. And so it reduced the barrier of entry to getting your words out there. Why did you choose that format for your goal of computer science education? So I chose a zine format for a couple of different reasons. One was that my target audience was high school students, and I thought that that media might speak to them. Another was that I wanted full control of what kind of content would go into it, and that by being self-published, I wouldn't have to be restricted to what a publisher wanted. And because I was really scared of this project, but Zines are often things that are handwritten with marker, reproduced with a photocopier. It helped make this project feel less intimidating because no one expected perfection from a zine. What kind of response did you get? First of all, I was surprised that even though my target audience or the the audience that I wrote this for was myself as a teenager, that a lot of adults were interested in reading it too, and a lot of men, even though men were not my target audience per se. And this goes to, I guess, validate research that if you try to make computer science materials that are more inclusive of marginalized people, it turns out that it helps make it more inclusive to everyone in general. There have been studies that show that when teachers have tried to make their science classes more inclusive to the girls in the class, more boys also participated. So it's just a win for everyone. Well, I can't speak for all men, obviously, but I have several of your zines here I picked up recently. And I think, as I mentioned in the intro, they're adorable. And I uh, have enjoyed reading about caches, and I learned a few things about that from Cache Cats. And uh, (laughs) I've got a book here on crypto that 
you know, I would never, ever read anything on crypto, but this is kind of cool. And it's also nice to have them around to uh, leave in prominent view of my daughter so that she will eventually pick them up and learn at least something about what it is that I do. That's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Oh, and you you picked them up at um, the Books with Pictures store, right? Yeah, it's such a great little store. I love that store. So you distribute them both in print and electronically. Right. It's really beautiful. The part about trying to be inclusive to anyone makes things more inclusive. It's like if you just think about appealing to people, any people, then you're thinking of like new ways to present information. And that's stimulating to all of us than just falling back to the same old, ah, here's a blog post. Exactly. I remember having a similar conversation when I was working at a startup with trying to make the job descriptions more inclusive. The job description at the time was like, work on cutting edge technology and use state of the art algorithms. And I was like, can we change this to like, who our work will affect, the impact it will make on people's lives. And we wrote it. And the engineers that I was working with said, actually, this just sounds like a better job description overall. So trying to make it more inclusive to marginalized people by talking about the benefit it would have on people's lives, which studies show that marginalized people do care more about that in a job description than working on state-of-the-art algorithms, made it just a better job description in general. Yeah, sweet. Julia Evans wrote a job description for like our team that was just published this week. And it's super awesome. It's like, you might work on this project or something like this. And it's like drastically more compelling than any other job description I've read. That's amazing. Um, I know how enthusiastic she can be. So I feel yeah. like if she wrote about a job description, it would just sound super exciting, no matter what it was. She worked remember, super hard on it. She spent days and days and days on this job description. I remember reading somewhere too that if you have a job description that provides like a laundry list of required or even desired technical skills, that marginalized people are less likely to have a confidence to say, well, I don't have all those skills, but I have this group of them, so I'm going to apply. Whereas men in particular are more confident and will apply even if they don't have all the skills listed. Yeah, I've read that too. And it's more interesting, I think, in general, just to to make the job description about what you're going to do and not how you're going to do it. Because in the end, that's really what matters, right? Julia also makes zines. I was wondering, Amy, when you distribute your zines electronically, is it like for reading on the iPad or is it for printing on the printer? It's primarily for reading on like a tablet, but it's definitely possible to print. I say on the license, like just print for personal use if it's a digital copy. But yeah, it can be either way. How can people subscribe to this, Amy? I have them available at bubblesort.io. And I'm also currently working on six new issues, and there's a Kickstarter running for that that'll wrap up in a few days. Awesome. Is Kickstarter how you generally fund your project, or do you also have a Patreon? Kickstarter is the main way. I used a Kickstarter last year because having the money up front really helped with like the printing costs, paying the editors, stuff like that. And it worked out well enough that I decided to do the same thing for the second round of scenes. What do you have planned for the next six issues? So I'm really excited about these issues. There are going to be issues about compilers, operating systems, image processing, data structures, 
interesting applications of computer science where I interview artists and crafters who incorporate technology into their practice. How do you pick what you're going to have in each issue? A couple of things influence my decision of what to put in. For these six issues, a lot of them were things that I was scared of when I was in college. Like I was a good student and made good grades, but still when I saw a class that said introduction to compilers, I was like, oh, I'm not smart enough for that. And so that's now part of a huge reason of why I want to cover those topics specifically for anyone who might also feel the same as I did. The previous set of topics was things that were like kind of like aha moments for me when I was studying computers. For example, there's one called How Do Calculators Even? And it goes all the way from like the history of numbers to binary numbers to electricity and how it works to using electricity to make computations to making your own adder circuit. And I remember when learning about all of that being mind blown that we could get electricity to make computations for us. And that also, even if you didn't end up studying computer science long term, it's still just a useful thing to understand how that works when you use computers every day. That is so great. I have a computer science degree, and some of those topics are still intimidating to me. <laughs> so uh, I'm really looking forward to reading every single one of those. Thank you. We're going to take some time to thank another one of our $10 level patrons, Thomas Schaefer. Thank you, Thomas. And thank you to all of our awesome contributors. If you'd like to support us, please visit patreon.com slash greater than code. And that link will be in the show notes. So Amy, in addition to Bubble Sort, you've had a lot going on in 2016. What else have you been up to? So one thing that I've been working on for the past six months is organizing a Sailor Moon art show in a gallery in San Francisco. So your um your Twitter handle is Sailor HG. Right. We I, we actually had a guest question, which is um why is Sailor Mercury the best of the Sailor Scouts? So can you explain your fascination? <laughs> So I guess, first of all, I don't so much feel like Sailor Mercury is the best Sailor Scout or even my favorite Sailor Scout, but she's a Sailor Scout that happens to be me. That's convenient. My my fascination with Sailor Moon started when I was in junior high. I discovered Sailor Moon via the internet and made... Sailor Moon is an anime, right? That's right. It's an anime about teenage girls that are regular students during the day and then battle evil monsters at night. And I discovered it via the internet and would make lots of fan sites about Sailor Moon. So I I associate it with like learning HTML and learning to code. And there was one of the characters who had my same haircut, who had my same name, who had my same height, who um, had my same favorite color, who... I guess most importantly, she really liked computers and science and was going through a lot of the same problems that I was at the time where I felt like no one at school would talk to me. I usually sat alone or just like skipped lunch and was in the library at the computer. And they show Sailor Mercury being similarly socially ostracized at school until she meets Sailor Moon. So I really identified with the character and 
I also loved how all of the Sailor Scouts, once they met, were really different. Some were athletic, some loved to cook, some um, were really academic, some weren't, but they were all good friends despite of or maybe because of their differences. And that gave me hope for eventually finding a group that would accept me for how I was and that we could battle evil monsters together. Maybe that's what we need in the world. More evil monsters. <laughs> we could stop fighting each other. More battling. I think we have plenty evil of evil monsters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> personally, I think we need more Sailor Scouts. <laughs> you said something interesting. You said that Sailor Mercury isn't necessarily your favorite Sailor Scout. She just happens to be you. And that ties into what you just said also about wanting a group of people who are different. So I don't know, maybe who's your favorite Sailor Scout or why do you really enjoy people who are different than you? I don't feel like I have a favorite Sailor Scout. They're all really great in their own way. And I love the variety. There are nine of them total. And I feel like part of the popularity of Sailor Moon is when there are that many characters that are all really distinct and different, it's easy to find one that you relate to. I think that um, awesome teams are kind of built the same way, where you have people with different characteristics and different experiences and different talents who come together to solve a common problem. Exactly. Then there's always someone that you can relate to, even when you're like expressing different parts of yourself. I feel like when I'm in a group of people that we have certain things in common, then that's the only part of myself that I get to express. But when I'm around people who aren't like me in some designated way, then I find new parts of myself that I hadn't expressed before. I want that for this podcast. I want to have panelists and guests that everybody can relate to and ideally like relate to in ways that they've never even related to themselves before. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I think that's part of our overall philosophy, Jessica. <laughs> Good. I'm glad we're alike in that way, Coraline. Yes. <laughs> Amy, I think I first met you when you gave a conference talk I want to say maybe Madison Ruby. Oh, right. That was a really great conference. And your talk there about computer sciences, alchemy was amazing. Oh, thank you. I think the talk you gave there involved sweaters. Am I remembering correctly? Yeah, that's correct. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. So I think it's a great example of like combining your art with technology. So I think that's really a fascinating kind of topic. Thank you. So the talk that I gave at Madison Ruby was called Sweaters as a Service, and it stemmed from seeing an old ad for a Nintendo add-on that never made the cut, but it was supposed to be an add-on to a Super Nintendo that would use a program similar to Mario Paint, where you could design knitted objects and then this add-on would just knit them for you. And the article was like, this is really weird. We see why this never made it. But I was like, this is the best thing I've ever heard of, and I can't understand why they didn't make these. So I tried to do some research. I tried to find out if there were any prototypes I could get my hands on, and there weren't. But it turns out that there was a period of time where home knitting machines were really popular and I managed to find one on Craigslist 
And I knew that I had to turn it into something similar to the Nintendo add-on that never happened. And I ended up bringing it to an Airbnb hackathon and found seven other people that liked the idea of hacking it. And we learned how to use it. We learned how to hack it to knit our own patterns. The trick is using a floppy drive emulator because you used to be able to upload additional patterns to this knitting machine via floppy drive. So if you just <laughs> emulate a floppy drive on your laptop and use like especially we had to make our own USB cable that went from like the laptop USB to the slightly unusual serial port that went into the knitting machine. Um, so we transferred additional patterns to the machine that way and then eventually made a server where you could upload photos and then send them to the knitting machine. That's pretty amazing because that, that involves both hardware hacking and software hacking, right? Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was yet another example of being on a team of people who we all worked on different parts of the Airbnb product. And none of us really knew about knitting, but having no ego attached to it, like none of us thought that we understood the machine, the knitting machine better than anyone else because we were all equally clueless about the knitting machine, lent itself to having really good team dynamics. I love that. So being equally clueless helped you learn together as a team. Exactly. <laughs> That's totally a thing. It helps to like learn with people who are at your level. And it also ties back into something you said earlier that I thought was important. You said that the genre of zines felt less intimidating because no one expected perfection. Mm -hmm. and, and here it is again. It's that we can do more. We can create more when we don't have that pressure of perfection. Right. I think it's pretty interesting, too, that the first sort of programming that was done just like before Ada Lovelace even was programming for looms, the automatic weaving machines use punch cards. Yes. To actually like create the patterns and so on. And that was like a great inspiration for Babbage and Lovelace. So it feels like in a way the sweaters as a service is a return to the roots of programming. <laughs> exactly. Historically, looking at all the examples of how technology and craft have been intertwined, makes it even more confusing to me that we keep trying to make a dichotomy between art and science. Yeah, it really reminded me of the thing that you said at the top of the show about introducing art into STEM. It's really reintroducing uh, art to STEM and vice versa, because those, these things have been feeding back and forth throughout both of their histories. And uh, it's nice to see that uh, called out a little bit more. Yeah, you're totally right. It should be a reintroduction. So what can I, as a software developer, learn from the world of art? Art can help give us empathy for other people's experiences. A lot of times when you're reading a book, it's really immersive and it can put you in a person's experience that you might not experience otherwise. And that having more empathy makes you a better technologist because technology should be people-focused. Yeah, we want the computers to serve the people and not the other way around. I always feel sorry for the people at the hotel desk, and I don't understand why it takes 10 minutes to check someone in at the hotel, but I know it's not the person's fault. It's totally the software. <sighs> Sam, I have I, I have a, a comment on that too. Alan Kay, the other day at Codemash, 
said that artists understand that the present is a construction. There's something about art that expresses the limitation of our current context and our choice of context and just the idea that there is a world that we're choosing to ignore (laughs) because there always is. Or the thing that we think of as objective reality is also entirely subjective. Yeah. There is a reality, but we can't know it. So we make up our own and the artist is like intentionally making up their own. So it sounds like you're saying that this way of thinking about yourself and thinking about how you fit in the world is kind of flipped when you're looking at it from the perspective of an artist, right? Because as an artist, you can't be everything and know everything, but you can try your best to know something and then express it so other people can know that same thing the way that you did. Is that right? That's beautiful. Yeah, I really like that. Oh, and now I'm thinking about one of the things that I've always loved about Uh, science fiction or speculative fiction, if you prefer, is that some of the best work comes from taking what's basically our current culture and then say, well, what would happen if this one thing were were flipped around from a different perspective? Like, what would follow from that? And just that trick of being able to say, well, what if that thing wasn't true has been so useful in getting unstuck from coding problems that I, I can't imagine doing my job without it. Oh, yeah, especially if you're building a distributed system and you need to constantly think about, well, what if this fails? Oh, no, that's that's a perfectly reliable component. Yes, and when it (laughs) fails, then what? (laughs) All hail the chaos monkey. I did want to ask, when did you learn that making websites was a full-time career? I'm also wondering, what did it feel like to quit your job to make zines full-time? It took me a while to wrap my head around the idea of making websites as a career because it had been a hobby for so long. And because at the time that I started making websites, full-time web development wasn't a thing. And so when I applied for my first web development job, I just felt like, wow, who knew that I could take my hobby and have it become a career? And my parents' reaction to it was, so you're saying that you're going to be a webmaster as your profession. And like just the title webmaster, like, which was reminiscent of like the 90s. <laughs> yeah, what year I, was this? What year was it that I became a webmaster professionally? Yes. Um, <laughs> it was 2008, maybe. Um, wow, what a throwback. Yeah. <laughs> I had a similar experience, Amy, with, um, I was a CS dropout, but I have always been fascinated by technology. And I was on the internet um, in 93. That's when I first got on. And I actually built my first website before their graphical web browsers. Um, oh I built it for link, links. And uh, I was working in an engineering company, but I was working in marketing, building databases. And they started their first web team. And they're like, hey, we're starting a web team. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. Get the company on the internet. That's really nice. And they were like, what do you think that's going to do for your career? I was like, I have a <laughs> Yeah, but how are you going to use this? Amy, who suggested to you that you apply for a job making websites? I just saw a listing and I was like, hey, this is the stuff I've always done personally. Like I've always had my own website, started a blog when that became popular. I guess it feels really similar to making zines as a career, to be honest, because drawing in 
the margins of my notebooks was what I've always done as a hobby and would never have thought of as a career. So transitioning from web development to making scenes wasn't as weird as it might be for some of us who like grown up with computers are a job. Yeah, I guess on one hand, not. But on the other hand, I like don't meet as many professional zine makers like who do that as their full time career as I did web developers yet, even though the idea was new to me yet. Um, I like that line of thinking. <laughs> So I had a question uh, based on something that I read out from the intro. Uh, you mentioned that you did uh, HCI research at the University of Tokyo. Uh, what sort of thing did you work on? And uh, second follow-up question, what is something really cool in that field that more of us uh, in sort of day-to-day -day web dev should know about? Pretty cool question. What's HCI? <laughs> <laughs> so HCI is human-computer interaction. That basically meant that it was the University of Tokyo's media lab. I worked on a project that I designed and was the lead of. It was a interface to design clothes by drawing on and around a mannequin and having a 3D motion tracker extrapolate those points into a 3D model of a piece of clothing. Wow. And then um, a flattening algorithm would change that into a flat pattern that you could cut out and sew together to make the actual garment. That is awesome. Thank you. I was really inspired by all of the other people that were working in the lab and going back to the art and technology being intertwined. Um, most of my lab mates told me that their inspirations for their projects were either Doraemon, a Japanese kids cartoon about a robotic cat um, or Astro Boy, a Japanese cartoon about a robotic little boy. But the like sci-fi worlds of either the robot cat or the robot boy were what inspired them to make weird and unusual things in the lab. Sorry, there was a second half to your question. There was. Uh, I was just wondering if there was something uh, really cool and interesting from the field of HCI that uh, those of us who are not in that field uh, should know about, would benefit from knowing about, or might just think is really cool. A lot of it isn't directly useful per se. The difference that I find between working in an HCI lab and working in the industry is um, a lot of the things in the HCI lab won't ever see the light of day or it's kind of maybe only like 5% of those things will ever be incorporated into actual products. But the things that you might work on day to day at a tech company might not be as exciting or interesting, but people are going to use the product, which is exciting. I'm curious, did that make the work more fulfilling or less fulfilling knowing that what you were doing was R&D? I mean, did you like strive to make something that was that 5% that would see the light of day? Or did you just feel like you had a lot of creative freedom to pursue whatever you're interested in? It definitely made me feel like I had more creative freedom because I didn't have to feel constrained about is this something that people would want right now? Or is this going to be popular enough that it will make money. So it was very freeing in that way. But there's also something really satisfying about knowing that people are using your product every day. Um, so I feel like I tend to have to do the two in waves. Like if I work in 
computer science research for a while, I'll get sad that no one's using my stuff and move back to working on industry stuff. And when I do that for a while, then I start to feel creatively constrained. So a lot of my career is oscillating between the two. Do you see yourself getting back into full-time development work? I don't think that I see myself getting back into full-time development work for the company. I'm trying to figure out how I could possibly do it kind of more on my terms. Um, I have a lot of ideas for games, and that might be my next venture after Bubble Sort, but that would just be me and possibly a few other people making a game together. But um, I'm still trying to find my own balance of being able to work creatively on something that I feel like a lot of people would use. I love that point about you may not think what you're working on is cool, but if people use it, that's cool. Yeah, I guess I've talked to people who are focused on research and have done nothing but research on some of the things I've been working on in industry. And a lot of times their reaction will be, but that problem's already been solved. Like there's already a paper about it, but (laughs) that doesn't mean that it's been solved for like this particular specific use case. That doesn't mean that the paper that described that it was possible, like brought it to people. It doesn't. Yeah. It's a, a really different mindset. And I think that working so removed from people all of the time can skew what you think of as important. Yeah, there's such a big difference between proving something possible and making it useful to people. Yeah. Making it possible for everyone to do it and not just you on your own laptop. Yeah. So at the end of every show, we'd like to take a moment to reflect on the conversation we've had and sort of highlight the things that we thought were really interesting or really poignant or really touched us in some way. So Astrid, do you have any thoughts on our conversations today? Yes. I love so much of what we talked about, about art and science and how they work together. But I think that the thing that I got the most out of, which was surprising, is to pay more attention to the hobbies that you have or the things that you don't really notice that you do all the time, because since things change so fast, even though right now it may not be something that you could actually do for a living in a few years, you could probably build a whole career on it, which is something I'm going to start doing, you know, paying a little more attention to the stuff I just absentmindedly do. Now I have to figure out a way to incorporate juggling into my programming career. (laughs) You could totally do that. Isn't that called Jira? Oh, <laughs> I think you have to put a dollar into the swear jar for bringing up that word. <laughs> <laughs> That's a four-letter word, yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. So I really liked uh, what we touched on earlier about making things accessible to marginalized people so that everybody benefits. Somehow in my head, this fits. It, it goes along with this idea that I can bring more art into my work. I mean, I focus a lot on my craft and figuring out how to communicate through words and code, but I don't take that extra step of actually going out and explicitly seeking inspiration in other forms of art. And uh, that's something that I could do more of. I was really struck by something you said, and I plan on tweeting this, Amy. Um, art gives us empathy for other people's experiences. I think that empathy is is so critical and so overlooked in our profession. 
We don't have empathy for end users. As my girlfriend has been talking about lately, we don't even have empathy for the computers that we use every day. We write code that abuses our computers. So I think it's really interesting, and I want to think about more um, how to integrate some concepts from our maybe world building, maybe exploring, as Sam said, alternate realities where what if this thing was not true and how I can use that to influence the work that I do professionally and in my side projects. So I found that really fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. I feel like I interjected all the things that I thought were important, like during the show. I'm really happy with the art as empathy, as inclusiveness, as welcoming, as helpful to all of us. The the zines, for instance, just make it easier for any person to think about things like bubble sort or cryptography, to go deep into how calculators work and like it, and that it is art. We get so like deep into the details of the code. It really helps to step back. And for me, I'll like, I'll go draw some slides instead of writing some code for a presentation or just something with my hands and paper and scissors and markers. Yeah. Try it for a break sometime. Instead of making a Jira ticket, go um, make post-it notes with drawings on them and then Stick them on. I have a giant post-it note on my wall that I stick my little post-it notes on in various configurations. And since I work at home, it's just mine. And there's no one that I have to explain it to. And I don't have to make columns because I put it there so I just know where it is. This is strangely satisfying. So thanks, Amy, for the reminder that art is not an alternative to technology. It is an integral part to doing technology well. Amy, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I really enjoy talking to all of you. I was really struck by Astrid's insight into art as admitting that you don't know everything and wanting to create a little bit of alternate reality that other people can look into and understand. That was a really beautiful insight. Wonderful. Thank you to all of our listeners and especially our supporters. And if you would like access to secret content like what we talked about during the break, go to patreon.com slash greater than code and sign up to continue this great podcast. Keep it the cash. <laughs> we are listener supported, which is very important to us. And we are thankful for every one of our patrons. Um, should also mention that if you do sign up to support us at any dollar level, you get access to a SAC community of other listeners, panelists, and guests. So you can like pose guest questions. You can continue the discussion that um, you heard on the podcast. It's really a great, very welcoming, very inclusive community, and we'd love for you to be a part of it. So consider supporting us. I think that's going to wrap us up for the week. Amy, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was really great to have you on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking to all of you. And we will talk to you all next week. 